This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Boy, am I in an inspired frame of mind. Because I've been chatting with this incredible guest today, and already I'm just feeling this great spiritual love and connection. And then at some point, I thought, we have to turn the recording apparatus on because we're just going into some really beautiful places. And I do want to thank you all who tune in and listen all around the world. It amazes me that the people who write in from these different countries, it's a miracle of, the, I guess, the World Wide Web and really our eternal connection, too. She's written a beautiful book that I highly recommend. It's called Heal Your Ancestral Roots. Release the family patterns that hold you back. It's very deep. It's such a joy to welcome to the family for the first time, Adorada Dael Glati. How'd I do with that name? Uh, Awesome, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You're welcome. Please tell the worldwide audience what your first name means. It's so beautiful. It's it's in the Indian word for constellation. And in India, when you're born, you're born under, you know, sort of constellations and stars in those constellations. So um, that's the name of one. And um, no one has ever asked me that before, but the, the constellation my husband was born under um, is called the Anuradha constellation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he could believe it. And I was shocked when we found that out. Did you grow up in India? I did. I grew up in India. I grew up in Delhi. What was it like there as a young woman? It was amazing. I don't think I I appreciated all of it until I came here and sort of realized how much I'd lost. But it was... um, there was, of course, my family, my my cousins, my parents, my aunts, uncles. There were my friends, um, the neighborhood. Um, and I think that probably is like how many kids grow up here, too, when you just couldn't play. But, I, you know, India was like color. Um, festivals, like the festival that happened this week was the festival of color. You throw color on everybody. And the festivals are always like in the community. They're not in the home, they're in the community. So you're out there, um, part of everything. And then I think the most magical part was, um, you know, faith was kind of everywhere. And there was always this little element of magic in the day, Um, you know, what could happen. And I feel like that sort of piece was missing. Again, I never had the language to understand what was really missing. But that piece that there's always this little magic about life, that part was missing. And but I had it there. And I feel so grateful now as an adult that who can look back that that was what I had. And isn't there a deep spirituality in the land and the mountains and the people that's ancient there that's renowned? It's like the spiritual cradle of humanity I've heard from others. Did you feel that? I, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was just, you know, in people who came to our house and, you know, everything. It was like in even the people who would come and work for us had their stories of, you know, what happened to me, what happened. I mean, the stories were part of like 
everyday conversation. They were not, it was not something separate. Like people flowed in and out between the intellect and the heart and the spiritual and the mystical. It was just, it was all like one flow. It didn't have separate compartments. Like if you're a professor in a university, it didn't mean you have another, you didn't have another part of your life that was also equally real. So it was interesting to have that mix always. Did you ever feel restricted just because you were a woman there? Because it is an ancient culture and there are elements that can come off as misogynistic or limiting to the uh, the divine female. Just like here, I should add. Um, you know, it's interesting. So uh, uh, we were two sisters and my uncle, my father's elder brother, there were three girls. And although my father and his brother grew up in a small town, they never had like a small town mentality. They were just so wide open. They were so, so the five of us literally grew up together and we had so much freedom. Um, we had freedom to express ourselves, freedom to think, freedom to explore. I think the one thing that maybe you might see as restrictive was in terms of, you know, how you dressed. I mean, but we didn't have like, I mean, in those days in India, you don't have like shorts and tank tops and things like that. But we wore like jeans and, you know, whatever else we, whatever else was in fashion. So I feel like this sense of being restricted. And I think it had a lot to do not just with my mother, but also with my father. Um, I mean, we we were pretty, we, it was a pretty liberal household. Was there an emphasis on education and lifting and rising? My mother's family had sort of gone, her, her oldest sister had, you know, gone and studied. She was the first to do that. Um, and that was a big departure in those days to leave the the town that she was in and, you know, go and study in Calcutta. Um, and that was like, um, it was pre-independence. And then my mother had her brothers who had gone overseas to study. And so I think we we just naturally studied, but, you know, I feel like for parents today here, like if I list, look at what's happening in the US or in India, there's a lot of pressure on kids and to go to college and a certain type of college and all of that, but we didn't have that. It was just like, you know, you have the freedom to study, you have the freedom to do what you want. So I didn't really have like, I've got to do something or be something. So I fell in love with my, you know, with my subjects and, um, and, and so did my sister, but it was just, um, it, there was no pressure. It was just, you know, exploring, learning. And I think that's how we became sort of lifelong learners. We're both always learning something, exploring something that draws us. And I think that's just, that comes maybe from my childhood. You make a good point, too, because I see all this pressure on the young people to figure it all out. And I know people 40s, 50s, 60s who haven't figured it out. And there's record levels of depression, suicidal thoughts, disconnection, alienation. Obviously, social media, which is so unperfectly named, anti-social media should be the real name, has played a part in it. But you see it, don't you? There's just, we've gotten off track. We're not letting children develop, be free, play, and enjoy the beingness of their youth. 
Yes, I I feel like the kids, there's so much structure. The unstructured time is gone. And I feel like, you know, there's so many after school programs that they're always supervised, always with an adult. So if a child is constantly with an adult from school, home, practice, sports, music, um, you don't you don't develop that sense of who am I? Because there's a feeling of being judged. And I think that can create anxiety over time. Like, is my performance on the team enough? Is my performance in music enough? Um, so where you're picking up other people's projections rather than figuring out who, who you are, what you can do, what you can be, be. So I think it's hard on the kids. Are you a mother? I am. I have two kids. Yes. What's your parenting philosophy? You know, my kids are kind of far apart in age. Um, uh, they are about eight and a half years apart. And I was a much more, I was a different parent with my son. Um, I was a different parent. I am a different parent with my mother, but uh, with my daughter. But I feel as a mother, I've sort of come to the middle with both. And all I want to do is to allow them to feel like loved, supported, encouraged, and do your own thing. I'm a much, I'm a much kinder and softer mother than I was when my son is 26 now. And it's a journey. Um, a parenting is a journey. And our kids are here to make us learn and to push our buttons and make us change as parents and humans. It's like the biggest gift they can give us is to grow as human beings and then become better parents. Because I, I feel like it took me time to realize this. I, I feel like I will always be a flawed mother. I will never be a perfect mother. And that gives me freedom to just say, you know what? I'm just doing the best I can. I'm not going to be perfect. And whatever pieces I leave of imperfection in the kids' minds, they'll sort it out as they look back and reflect on their lives. But all I can do is just love them and be the best I can for them. Did you ever read that beautiful poem in the Rumi Prophet book about how you are the bow and they are the arrows? Yes, I so believe it. I mean, I feel um, my son in middle school was, you know, kind of like challenging us a lot. And I, it made me realize, like, I can't change him. I need to change myself. I need to go inside. I need to learn how to be better, how to be different. And um, I feel like, you know, one of my all-time books that I love is uh, Stephen Covey's, like, Seven Habits of Effective Family. Really, I, I feel like I learned so much. And it allowed me to shift my relationship, like, not control him, but change who, who I was and how I parented. And that was the start of a whole different journey on parenting for me. So that was a big gift he gave me. And in these conscious choices, are you healing your ancestral roots and patterns? I think so. You know, I one of the things that I, I feel like having moved to the U.S., my kids didn't really see their grandparents so much because of the distance, the time. Uh, they were not here for their big celebrations, their big mile, milestone moments. 
but I feel, you know, some of the parenting is instinctive and some you are learning because your environment is changing. Uh, um, you know, things are changing. My, ki my kids are, this is the American culture. It's dominant culture. And so you still need to keep your center and from that, try to live. And there's a culture clash between your family culture, whatever anybody's family culture is, and the dominant culture. You refer to social media. So you're always navigating that space. And that involves, you know, being inside and outside, inside and outside. It's like a flow that you're doing all the time. How in heaven's name did an economist evolve into a healer? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I I have to say I don't really think um I expected it. But at some level when I look back, I think it was meant to be. It was um it it was probably part of what I was going to do. But of course when it happened, it happened in a very, very traumatic way. Um I I had a health problem and I had to go into the ER. And I thought, you know what? I'm out. This is behind me. I'm going to get back to life as usual. It, things will be okay. So when I had to go back into the ER one night out of nowhere, I remember being really shaken and a little worried, like, am I going to be okay? But I came out a second time. It was when I had to go in the third time. And I started to feel like the sense of despair coming over me, the sense of like helplessness. And I was looking at the doctor's faces and I realized like no one really knew what was going on. But I had this friend and she came to see me in the hospital. And I was an economist then, I was in academia and she was into alternative healing. And she came to see me and she held my hand and she looked at me and she said, Anu, how many times are you gonna go through this before you're ready to change, before you're willing to try something different? And I remember her words even to this day because they really hit home. And I literally willed myself out of the hospital and I started to look at alternative methods of healing. And that's when I discovered this amazing Chinese medicine doctor. And I discovered flower essences and those two things together, like, you know, save my health. They changed my life. They put my life on a different trajectory. And um, I think more importantly, what that incident made me realize is how important hope is in our lives. Hope is so important. And that's what made me realize, like, this is what I want to do. I want people to recognize that they're never powerless. They are never... They, they can always create change in their life. They can move forward. To me, that's the most important thing I want to share. And I think finally, this is what prompted me to leave academia and like just let go of economics. Because it wasn't, it wasn't filling the part of me that wanted to do something meaningful. Did you ever figure out what the thoughts were, the belief systems? what inner choices you made 
that perhaps helped manifest this disease that you created and then used as a tool to grow? I was just angry. I was angry. I was actually, so I had a miscarriage and it happened right after um, 9-11 that I've, I figured out I was, I saw that I was pregnant and I just, um, I, I felt, I felt like what, you know, the sense of uh, this despair was already sweeping over me. And when 9-11 happened, I was in England. My husband was in South America. My sister was in Washington, D.C. My father was in India. We were scattered all over the world. And it really shook me. And when I came back, um, I think at heart, I've always been a pacifist. And so I was just fine. There was so much swirling inside of me, like the sense of disconnection, the sense of loss, the sense of alienation the sense of what do I believe? How do I feel? Like all of that. And I, I think that's, that's why it happened. And it's really important to understand now, as I look back, that no matter what happens in the world, and there's a lot that happens in the world, we don't lose our sense of optimism. Just because some things happen outside, we don't lose connection to our soul, to our sense of optimism, because history is long cycles of patterns and shifts that move and unravel and take things forward. So we are part of it all. We don't, we can't lose hope. I feel like that's what I really learned. Not at that time, though. Do you see yourself? though more as and not every second because that would ruin the dream do you see yourself more as an eternal spiritual aspect and energy that's having an experience as this character who used to be an economic you know an economist and now is a mom and a spiritual teacher and uh someone who's an author who helps people heal but that's just part of an infinite eternal journey it's sacred but you don't completely identify this is it. That's who you are. And you have a story. You were born in India. Do you see yourself at times from the larger perspective, the more infinite perspective? Um, so if I was to rephrase that. Please. <laughs> you, what you're saying is, do I sense myself as a spiritual being who's having a human experience as they kind of say that? Yeah, that's the cliche you always hear in the new age circles. Yeah. I have to say, I feel more like a human who's trying to be better. <laughs> a lot. I, I feel this connection to something bigger, but I also feel more strongly that I'm here to let go of all of that that sort of brought me, um, that that makes me so like the not so good human. And so I... I, that's the part that I, I like to shed. Like I like to leave that behind so that I can walk more and more into that feeling of like, I'm the human who can connect into that spiritual space. I don't often feel like 
I'm divine and having a human experience. I always, I feel more like I'm human and I'm trying to get to that other space and feel it more and more. So, yeah, sorry to pierce the bubble a little bit. Well, no, in fact, it was the Buddha himself who said, none of that is attainable as a woman until you have an empty nest and the kids have moved out. <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, Paul, well, I, can I can I share this? So, you know how every, every culture has myths, has legends. Uh, and so the Buddha leaves his newborn son, his wife, his kingdom, his father, and goes away. And he comes back. He comes back the wise man. The he doesn't come back as like the father, the husband, the the ruler, and we have our story, our legend, um, you know, which so much of India like believes and follows, and is the story of Ram, and he goes off into exile, and his wife follows him, but he comes back, he comes back, the ruler, the son, he stays the husband, he ends up having two children, he's the father. He comes back to all of that. So that is like the humanness. We don't, I mean, I'm still always like the mother, the spouse, the daughter, the, the sister, the whatever. Um, and those relationships give me so much fulfillment and joy in my life. And I think happy people are those who, who have found the meaning in their relationships, because that's what brings us at the end, so much research says, you know, um, meaningful relationships are what keeps us happy and healthy. So you have some great tools in the book. What tools can you talk about here on the air, tell to people around the world with healing one's roots? So in the book, I actually, um, you know, talk about two tools, but the tools are, you know, and the tools are flower essences and working with your ancestors in honoring them by either creating an ancestral altar, offering prayers for their well-being. But behind the tools is really like two kind of things. One is that our ancestors impact our life. And they their actions from the past or what's unresolved in the generations before us, it shows up as a ceiling on our life. So when we pray for their well-being, we allow them to evolve and then they don't have to, we don't have to be acting out their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. And the longest healing journey is really from the head to the heart. So the flower essences are honestly like a tool to allow us to make that journey from the head to the heart. Because intellectually, you know, we can say anything, um, you know, my parents were this way, my grandparents were this way, or whatever, and rationalize it. But it do doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts will soften and open. And that is a different part of the journey. And if we can do that, then there's this tremendous healing portal that opens up for us. Do you feel your ancestors working with you and around you? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, the first time I, I and I'm, I've never really shared this story, but the first time I went for family constellation work, I had no idea what it was. Um, and uh, she said to me, your grandmother wants you to write a book. And I was like, I'm like, I'm skeptical, like coming 
I'm even more skeptical now. Um, and so I didn't really plan to write a book. I had no, I, you know, that was never on the agenda. But I would go for those weekends. I would just come back and write and write and write and write. Um, it was my way of processing what was going on. And um, suddenly I had a book. It was not like I planned to write a book. It was, but doing the family constellation work gave me like the language and the framework um, to understand all those pieces of my life that hadn't come together, that I couldn't understand moving from India, moving to the US, moving, you know, cities and continents and all of that. But it gave me that language and the framework. And uh, that's how the book emerged. And so maybe my grandmother was right. She wanted me to write the book and she made it possible. Have you had experiences from other realms? I know that you may not have put in the book, but that you've personally experienced. Well, in family constellation work, I experienced it. Um, sometimes when I've walked into a place, I've experienced um, certain energies or something. I've learned to work better and have more boundaries and have um, and draw on my resources, which is my uh, spiritual lineage, um, my ancestral lineage for protection. So I have noticed that. So it's, uh, it's there. And, and I feel like when I don't, I don't necessarily like to dab, dabble. Maybe I'm a little <laughs> uh, scary, scared. Um, but I like to use my protection to, because I know that all of this is out there. And so sometimes when I see people who just want to dabble freely, um, I want to say that, you know, you want to be a little protected because there's stuff out there that exists. And it also made me understand that in India, a lot of homes have little altars. And I never really understood that. But now I've come to understand that when you have an altar in your home, however you create one, it doesn't necessarily have to be like the kinds of ones we do in India, but it creates a place for, you know, for it, it anchors the energy of the home because that becomes a place where you stop, you know, with gratitude, you stop if you're sad, you express your sorrow, you express, you know, a, a desire to be resourced to find strength, to find courage. And so when you stop every day at your altar, it becomes a place that nurtures you, that nourishes you, and it actually acts as a protective energy in the home. So even though, you know, I, I feel like even though I never really knew why there was an altar, doing the constellation work made me recognize, oh, this is why there's an altar. You're tuned in. What do you feel as a healer is going on with humanity right now at this point in time? You know, I feel that there are shifts that are happening. And there is like more and more people who are shifting to that space of being spiritual, whatever it might mean to them. And there are many more people who are sharing the word that you know there's something bigger and i think that's really 
that's kind of the direction that humanity is going in. But like everything else, it's going to take time. Like my daughter is a junior in high school, so she's doing European history. And I, you know, sometimes we have discussions at home and, you know, going from monarchy to universal male suffrage to women's suffrage to, you know, getting rid of slavery to understanding about colonialism, understanding the decimation of Native American traditions and then the rising up of what's coming up, you know, an awareness of Native American practices the growing importance of meditation, mindfulness, it's coming to schools. Um, I mean, I just feel there are always perhaps forces at work, but that are moving humanity in a certain direction. What does your daughter who's in junior high think of climate change and the environment? Is she aware of it? Do they talk about it uh, with her friends, amongst her friends? I'm finding a lot of young people, even as young as 10 or 11, 12, who are very aware of this and also concerned and some even depressed. Um, they, you know, they definitely are. I think climate change and also seeing among their peers growing levels of anxiety and anxiety about the environment. I think it's, it's definitely there, but I'd like to, can I just share a story, Paul? You can do whatever you want on the what matters most podcast. Well, you know, I want to share this story that my, it's been on my mind. Um, My father used to tell this story that there was a king who wanted to test the loyalty of his subjects. And so he had them bring, each of them bring a glass of milk and pour it into these big vats. Um, And so everybody would come, they'd bring a little glass and they'd have it covered and they'd pour it into the vats. And at the end, when everybody had, you know, had poured in the milk, Um, his minister went to open it and it was full of water because everything that, you know, everybody thought if I just poured in a glass of water, no one would notice. And that's what everyone did. So the vats were full of water. And in the absence of respect, in the absence of like honoring the earth, we arrive at that space where we feel our individual actions don't matter. And I think this is where like the Native Americans had, you know, when the earth is sacred, we have a a stewardship of the earth. In India, we see the earth as sacred. I mean, it's all shifting as capitalism is like, you know, making its appearance everywhere. But If we see the earth as sacred, then our individual actions matter. If we see the earth as our true mother, you know, the mother of all mothers, the mother of all fathers, our remains never leave the earth, then we can start to see that, you know, this is how we can take care of her. She nourishes us. She feeds us. How do we respond? So I feel like if we can shift that part, then we can shift from anxiety to a sense of hope and to a sense of deep love for the earth that'll, you know, that'll bring us home to ourselves. That is beautiful and poignant. Do you see the earth, I call her Gaia, mother, as a living, breathing, super conscious, sophisticated organism, not just a bunch of molten rock and trees and dirt. I see it as a 
this unbelievable soul being and the creator here. She is, she is the mother. Um, yes, <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, I feel like, you know, anytime we are upset and we go for a walk or we are out in nature, it just fills us. She heals us. She soothes us. And if we, you know, see the food that she provides for us, I mean, she's taking care of us like a mother. And sometimes we are so hard on her and yet she feeds us. I mean, how beautiful is that? And if we act out of balance with her, like any organism, we'll have to be eliminated or culled down to a non-threatening level, right? That's just physics and the laws of nature and life. Yes, yes. And um, she's going to be, the earth is going to be around a lot longer than we ever will be. So we, I mean, this is kind of our arrogance to think, you know, we can, we can control nature, we can subdue nature, we can change it, we can do whatever we like without repercussions. Maybe we're better off in other forms that are less destructive. You never know, Paul. We might end up that way. <laughs> we might serve better as compost than this homo colossus. It just is a killing machine. Yes, you never know. We might all come to that. <laughs> mm, that's beautiful. How does the listener get more in touch with their own gifts and souls along these lines? You know, we think of ourselves as rational beings. And I think this is how we're taught in schools and in so many different ways that we are rational beings who happen to have emotions. But if we flipped it, that we are emotional beings who rationalize, then I think it's really important that we start to listen to our emotions and we start to honor our emotions. And a lot of times we get messages where we disconnect from ourselves. We hear, oh, you're too emotional. You're too sensitive. You should have gotten over it by now. Don't bring your problems to work. But our emotions, if we start to listen, they are the compass that will start to bring us back home to ourselves. And let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, if you think of an emotion like jealousy, and we think, oh, she's so jealous, that's bad, that's, it's such a negative emotion. But if you think about it for a moment, jealousy is like, I want what she has or what he has. And so you might've tried to have it, but it didn't work out, it didn't happen, or you can't really have it. So there's an emotion of sadness, there's an emotion of bitterness, there might be an emotion of fear, like, I don't really know what I need to do to get there. So there's so many underlying emotions. And so if we start to look within, we can see that the there's a sort of disconnection with ourselves. And so just honoring our emotions as messengers about where we have disconnected from ourselves, it can allow us to start to journey back to ourselves because that's the only place we can really be like at home, in ourselves. And from that place, we can then start to live, like recognizing that if I'm triggered, oh, here's another place where I've disconnected from myself. Let me explore that. And honestly, you know, journaling is a great way to, such a cheap, such an effective way 
of getting in touch with your emotions, allowing it to move out of your head onto paper, because emotion is, you know, energy in motion. It needs a place to go. So writing, taking a walk in nature, you know, these are ways in which we allow our emotions to move. Because when we don't make space for them, that's when they start to come out in negative ways. Because that's, we can't connect with ourselves and we are, you know, pushing it out there in the world for somebody else to deal with. Do you meditate? Do you have an awareness practice? I do have, I do have my practices, yes, that I do on a daily basis. I think I have four practices that I do on a daily basis. I, um, I honor my ancestors. And of course, I stop at my altar every day, um, which allows me to live from a place of gratitude. I reflect every day. That's a part of my, my daily practice along with um, my spiritual connection. And um, I take my flower essences every day. They allow me to live from that space of, um, you know, gratitude, reflection, intentional awareness. That's really what helps me to maintain that space of intentional awareness every day. Why is gratitude so foundational and so fundamentally changing? If I live in gratitude, I feel so connected and so full of love and everything seems so much more magical. Yes. You know, ancestral healing happens when you release the feeling that you're a victim of what came before. And healing in all our lives requires us to release the feeling that we're victims of what, what is happening to us or around us. But when we start to live with gratitude, we start to notice that we're not necessarily victims. It's a window into allowing us to see things differently and to actually grow and to release expectations of others. So in that sense, gratitude just, gratitude opens the heart. So it allows us to see, it allows to shift that bitterness and anger and say, this is why it's happening. I get it. It's, It's helping me. It's supporting me. And that has a completely different energy. Gratitude vibrates as the same energy frequency as love. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page, at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.